if you look at the states in the deep south and, and generally the states in the south, the participation rates politically are, are lower than they are anywhere else in the country. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Doug Turner, who has for several decades been running a strategic advisory firm in Alabama called Sensio, providing data and policy analytics to partners in government, nonprofit, and policy advocacy. Doug has also been working with a recent guest on the show and former Senator, Doug Jones. The two Dougs have an effort that they call Every Voice, through which they hope to help turn around politics in the South by improved data and analytics. So I asked Doug Turner about Every Voice, as well as his work in politics in Alabama and beyond. It's worth your listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Doug Turner of Alabama. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Doug, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. I'm Doug Turner. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Politically, have been engaged going back to the time I was 18 years old as an intern for our state Democratic Party. But more recently is in 2017, helping my friend Doug Jones run for and win a special election to the U.S. Senate here in Alabama, which was followed all across the world eventually um, by the time the election came around and then uh, helping while he was in office for three years and trying with the 2020 campaign and, and working with him for some of the causes we both believe in since then. You are from Birmingham. Yes. I'm from a small town just outside of Birmingham. Tell me about your family, what it was like growing up there. So I grew up in, in what at the time uh, was a small town. My parents were both accountants, as fun as that may sound. They actually weren't, they were not terribly politically engaged one way or the other. It's um, something that I liked from a young age and went to um, a small liberal arts school here in Birmingham, Birmingham Southern College uh, as an undergrad and worked at the state Democratic Party beginning as an intern and worked full time. I was a political data nerd back then. I like to joke that like when there was just like the flashing green dot, you know, on the screen and you had to type a command into to, to DBase. So at some point thought, you know, politics is not a great life, not a great lifestyle. So um, I went to Tuck at Dartmouth, got an MBA, was friends and then became my fiance. Now my wife of 28 years was in a PhD program at the University of Maryland. So during those years, I learned the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware, very well, you know, up and down 95. So we, when we were married, decided to, to come back here, that we both cared about the place, that it had done a lot for us to see what we could do, you know, professionally to improve the place, to raise a family here. Uh, we thought it had a lot of potential then. She runs Girls, Inc. of Central Alabama. Very proud of her. She's actually a PhD in political science now. I have two children. My daughter is now 24, just turned 24. Went to Georgetown and works in the administration there in D.C. My son is, is 17. He's a junior in high school, and the world's full of open possibilities when you're 17. It is. Doesn't sound like too bad of a life. One thing that you didn't mention, but I assume that you're poised to, is that you started a firm, right? Yeah, well, I, I did, actually. 
always been a bit entrepreneurial and a couple years out of business school, started a small, say, boutique um, consulting uh, firm that did a lot of work for, and still does, for affordable housing, the financing of it, the sort of public policy analysis of it, also some economic and community development work. But as my wife works at Girls Inc., that's my kind of way to improve our world or how I try anyway, outside of politics. Is that pronounced Sensio? How do you? Sensio, yeah, yeah. And is Sensio, when when people say boutique, sometimes that means that's just me? No, no, it's, no, it's four folks right now. It's ranged in size up to, to seven or eight. The scale of the really goes along with kind of the, the focus of our work and, and um, what, uh, who some of our clients have been and, and the capacity needed. Is the name Sensio yeah. refer to the census in some way? Yeah, or? I mean, okay, so the honest, honest, honest answer to, to that was not the census itself. This will date the founding of the firm and, and when a lot of people were, were doing this. My partner and I at the time hired a local marketing firm to do some background stuff for us. And he's like, okay, so these are the do- domains that you can buy, you know, and this one's available. It's like, hey, that sounds good. Yeah, good enough. We're going to take that. And, uh, yeah, it was when you could buy the .com domain. So that date's kind of when we started, I think. But With that firm, who've been the sort of clients that you've typically had? Well, developers of affordable housing regionally. We did, for the longest time, had Fannie Mae and their American Communities Fund and did technical assistance to public housing authorities, to state agencies in terms of funding, again, affordable housing and both developments and renovation, a a great deal of renovation, the financing of it. For those who don't know, what's Girls Inc.? Oh, well, okay. Girls Inc. is a national organization. It's been around, I think, 135 years. I think it used before the Boys and Girls Club was the Boys and Girls Club. It was the Girls Club. It's a national organization. This is the local affiliate, Strong, Smart, and Bold to empower girls to really control their future lives. Sounds very worthy. Very proud of her in that, yeah. You've gotten yourself fairly tangled up with Senator Jones. How did you first meet him? Boy, that may be a good way to put it, too. (laughs) Just joking. When I was very young, I was an intern at, at the state Democratic Party. And, I mean, you know, Doug Jones was one of the the folks that before he was U.S. attorney or anything like that, when in the days in politics when you used to have to get a mailing out to to people, Doug Jones would show up to stuff envelopes. He was a a young lawyer um, in practice in town. He did the groundwork himself. So I've known him for probably 35 years. Well, when you first got to know him, what did you think of him and how did you develop a friendship. He's really quite a funny guy when you get to know him. You don't even have to get to know him terribly well to, to catch his humor, I think. He's a real person. Sometimes, I mean, you you don't see that as much in politics as you should. And, and sometimes you don't even see it as, as people like try to enter politics, right? They, they have a false kind of persona. He was always the guy that was trying to do well, but he was from Fairfield, Alabama. He was happy to be there, happy to have a chance to get to work with others and, and cared a lot about him. He's just um, someone that once you kind of come into his orbit, you don't leave. You know, he doesn't let you go. Everybody has his cell phone number. Everybody knows him. Did you think when you met him early on that this guy had a future in politics? As a oh, hell no. Candid- no. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, I'm sorry. Is that too candid? Um, he really did. Even then, whether it was appropriate or not, would tell you what he thought about something. And so he didn't fit uh, what at the time was a political figure, probably maybe maybe still not. He certainly had a good network of folks. He clearly had some compassion and things he really cared about and, and was willing to work. And so, I mean, maybe if I had looked at it from that lens, I could have said that, but ran into plenty of people then and have since then and, and, and still do who, you know, think that they have their life mapped out. And, um, you know, so they're already trying to be someone that was not and is not Doug Jones. So, no, I was sure that he would do 
good things, but to work his way into politics the way he did, even before the Senate run. No, I don't think that's that's something I would have said. Let me peg him at that point. What was the first time you did some work together on on a project? Beyond mailings and things like that, real a, a real project, probably around the early 90s. He did some some organizing in, in, in southern states then of, of what were sort of young attorneys. It was not the DLC per se, but it was it was a similar idea of, of bringing together a, a younger group of people who were not the old and large donors and all that, but you know did care about the South. Even then, it was a Southern-based project. Worked with him in organize, organizing some of that. So you mentioned the fateful 2017 special election. How did you connect on that? And as I understand it, you were... You know, part of the campaign, the chair of the campaign and a strategist for the campaign. Yes. We had been talking. His youngest child had gone to college by that point. He had toyed with the idea before of running for an office um, and had had not done so and, and was thinking about it again. And that happened to come up. And I remember the evening before Thanksgiving of 2016, when we knew Jeff Sessions was going to be attorney general, our state law was pretty clear that we had to have a quick special election for, for the U.S. Senate. We happened to be at, a, at an event honoring a, a, a mutual friend who has unfortunately since passed away. But I said to him, you know, this this is this is your entry. You know, you've been thinking about it. This is it. And uh, he said, no, I, no, I can't can't see doing that. I can't. First of all, I don't think it's going to happen because our governor at the time had, had said, well, we'll just do that at the next general election, which was not the state law. Well, the governor here changed a couple of weeks after that because of a scandal. KIV, who still governor, became governor, called a special election. And um, it was not a hard push at that point to get him to, to see that it was the right thing to do. And he has such respect for that institution. I can remember him thinking about it and, and talking through the time that he had spent there working for Senator Heflin right out of law school on Judiciary Committee and, and the great respect he had for the institution. So it was the right person at the right time. It truly was. What was your version of the story of that campaign? And this will be one that, that I know most won't believe, but I always thought we were going to win. Always. The person who was appointed um, was our then Attorney General, Luther Strange, who served a short period of time, appointed by Governor Bentley. As Attorney General, he had been investigating Governor Bentley, then went to the Senate, and the investigation, I think, slowed down. And so there was a real sense from people that either a deal had been cut or it's not the way things should work. So even before there was the Roy Moore and the Washington Post stories and all that, there was a sense that someone with the legitimacy of Doug Jones could take a special election. Were you surprised when those stories came out about Roy or were those kinds of things that circulated in the political undercurrents? Roy Moore had been um, a, a pretty interesting figure, twice removed as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, even before that, not not for for the reasons that came out in the Washington Post stories. With many political political figures, whether true or not, you hear stories such as this that circulate for years, but not to that magnitude. So, yeah, I mean, it was surprising. It it, it really was surprising. So, what did it take to win the primary on your side of the? Not much. We raised probably a little less than half a million dollars to win the primary. He didn't get in the first day qualifying open, so there were some other you know folks who qualified, at least one of whom I remember like left the primary to endorse him, and many of whom since then have have um, become real supporters of, of, of his. Nobody paid much attention to it. He got somewhere in the range of, of two-thirds of the vote, something like that, small vote at the time, and so one without a runoff with seven or eight candidates. He just had the stature that 
He did from his time as, as, as U.S. attorney. And in and, and the earlier days, I mean, even, I mean, going back to the project that I mentioned that was around the time of the DLC, I mean, the connections and, and the others were, were just folks who were either local office holders or, you know, hoping to, to break into politics and, and, and thinking that was a way to, to do it. What did you see on the other side? Because they also had a contested primary. Oh, yeah, very. Yeah, yeah no, they, they did. Uh, a, a primary that then went to a runoff. Roy Moore at some point had the wind to his back on that side. I mentioned earlier with then Attorney General Luther Strange that there was the sense that that even Republicans, and he was about as country club a Republican. I'm sure he doesn't listen to, to this podcast. So I said, so, I mean, he, he was about as much of a country club Republican as there could be. I think even those who had supported him in the past were probably a little disgusted with the way that the investigation of the former governor had gone. At some point, it became obvious that Roy Moore was probably going to be able to pull it together and win in the Republican primary and then runoff. So what, what do you think was your contribution to the campaign, kind of kitchen cabinet, it sounds like? What did you do? Yes. I mean, the, some, some of the upfront analytics showing me could win. I mean, I've always thought that, I mean, not, not just Doug Jones, but I think with candidates generally, I mean, you, you have to, to show them a path to not, be, to not be embarrassed, right? I mean, nobody wants to be embarrassed. I mean, I've seen plenty of people lose races. And so long as you're not just humiliated, right? I mean, it's like, what's the path? How do I get to, to, to the point where at least I can talk about the things that we need to discuss? If you can show someone that, um, then, then you usually have them. That was my first task was to, to show Doug Jones that like, yeah, even, even without, you know, the party structure that in, in place, even without any of that, there had been enough votes for democratic candidates that there were the people there that would make this. I always thought we'd win. I really did to show him that there was a real path there. So that, that and then the analytics in the campaign and, to continually remind him to be himself in the campaign because the surest way to lose um, in Alabama and Mississippi and, and other places like that is the formula that, that probably was in vogue 25 or 30 years earlier for Democratic candidates, which was to try to convince people you were a whole lot more conservative than you really were. At this point, people didn't believe it. Doug Jones is pro-choice. So Doug Jones was not going to play around with the fact that, you know, he's pro-choice. He really believed in, in equality. He took the positions that I think in a way surprised people outside of Alabama that someone from Alabama would have. And it, uh, it, it really gave a great lift to uh, those of us who live here who, who have those same sort of maybe center-left positions that someone was willing to actually say it. I think there is a view of the South from the National Democratic Party and has been for quite a while since it was kind of lost by the civil rights movement is the general tale. Lyndon Johnson said, I'm going to do the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but you can wave goodbye to that part of the country more or less. Over time, it took a while because there were Democrats kind of held on in different states where they had dominated since the Civil War for a really long time. But little by little, it went from the solid South for Democrats to the solid South for Republicans. What's your view of the South nowadays politically? How would you characterize Alabama and the other Deep South states well, almost any state to characterize it in a single way is oversimplifying it. Um, I live in a county. I live in Birmingham that, that, you know, voted for Hillary Clinton. It's solid. I hate the blue and the red, but I'll use them because everybody does. So, so they, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I think the South is so much more diverse now that doesn't come through with our politics and our politicians, um, for a lot of reasons, as, as much as it should. Some of that's just sort of structural gerrymandering. Some of it is, is as you mentioned earlier, not written off, but 
close to it. It's not um, what you'll really find here now. Many Southern states, whether it's been the Democratic Party, which really wasn't Democratic the way we think of it now, the Republican Party starting around 2010, one-party states, it's pretty common, unfortunately, to, to get in and hold on to, to, to power through any means you can. Do you think the South is backward? No, I don't. I actually don't really like that characterization. And, I didn't and, think you would. I mean, no, who would? I mean, yeah. uh, of, of, of either the South or, or of any... Uh, any of, part of the country. Or, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I don't. Is the South as a whole, or are there places in it, um, you know, caring and compassionate and forward-looking? Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I would think that that's true of, of other states that, that are not in the South that you might classify as, as ruby red. So I'm not crazy about that characterization of it. I don't. No, I, I think that the South is evolving politically and socially, perhaps not in exactly the same way that, as we like to say, whether it's coastal elites or whatever, in, in exactly the same way as Oregon would have, but it is moving forward in a lot of ways, not fast enough, and unfortunately not in, uh, in my view, in an even enough way economically to really help all of those who who are here. Are people that you are around politically or your opponents politically, what, what do you think they're reading, watching? Where's information coming from? if you can generalize about something like that well, or for them? The opponents are, are pretty well organized around very simplistic talking points and trigger issues that are likely coming from a Fox News type agenda and maybe the social media components of it. Do they believe those things? I think some of them do. Some of them simply use them. For those that... that um, are not of that persuasion. You know, there's there's a reason that that, that Southern states, if, if you look at just percentage turnout in, in elections and things like that, are always the bottom. I mean, always the bottom. Those who believe differently maybe no, don't have anybody to vote for, right? Their opinions are, are not seen expressed. And um, there's a rolling of the eyes at, at a lot of, of Southern politicians, even within really centrist groups. There's a concept in the world of redistricting and voting rights called racial block voting, BLOC, right? And what you observe in a lot of places is more or less white people voting for the candidate that they prefer and African-American people voting for the candidate they prefer, regardless necessarily of the race of the candidate, but they tend to to a very high percentage, line up against each other. How deep is that fixed where you are and in the states around you? It is fixed to a large degree. There are many cases that the U.S. Supreme Court over the last 200 plus years have been wrong in ruling. I, I think Shelby versus Holder was 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 probably would go on my top 10 list of, of bad decisions. And it's where... Um, Really, a, a, a lot of governed structural issues that we have. We were not in, in, in a post-racial society at the, the time. It would be wrong to say that 100% of whites vote this way and 100% of African-Americans vote a separate way. But it certainly is an enormous factor, not just Southern elections. I mean, you know, what's, uh, you, you can... You can find that in Midwestern states. I know that students of political realignment who study voting returns at a very small level and look at changes from election to election over time, they see that it's a very complex mosaic. You can't just make big pronouncements about, you know, here's a critical election and people flip over. And like any, any locality or state or ever is constantly shifting. What do you think the prospects are for the demographic change, for the efforts of the two parties to result over time in a more even 
match between the parties where you are? You see that mostly if you look at southern cities and municipal elections. That same rural urban thing that we see all over the country. Well, you see. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's that, but you 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 do see candidates where you will have. We certainly have a mayor in Birmingham, in Randall Woodfin, who wins the majority of, of, of the voter has in, in, in the two cycles that, that um, in his election, re-election that, that, you know, did unite the, the, the two communities politically. We are just starting to see, particularly in the deep South, some candidates on, on statewide basis who understand that, that their positions, what they say, have to broadly appeal to the diversified electorate to, to whom they're speaking. I'm fascinated right now in, in our neighbor next door with, with Brandon Presley. I mean, and what he's beginning to say in Mississippi. People seem very hopeful about his chances and his political skills. Yeah. I mean, it, for those who, who haven't seen the intro video, it's, um, it, it says a lot about the commonality maybe uh, uh, among um and, and, and maybe this is what you meant by backward. I don't know. And, and, but, but the commonality in, in kind of the impoverished white South and the impoverished rural or urban African-American communities, that there is a commonality there. And there is this idea that government can be a force for good in changing that. Those candidates are, are going to be the ones that can break through what you described earlier as like the block voting, because otherwise, I mean, if you have just two almost ridiculous extremes, which we do, unfortunately, in too many elections, then it's much harder to break through that. You have to find somebody who really can speak to the commonality. I think Doug Jones did that too, by the way, but, you know. You said you were pretty confident that he was going to win that 2017 race. What were your thoughts in the run-up to the 2020 attempt to re-elect him? I knew it would be really hard. Just because of the difference between a regular general and a special? Yeah. I mean, well, regular general, and special, the even in 2016, the people who voted for the first time uh, essentially for Trump and then didn't vote for four years, came back in 2020, voted for Trump again. I think you see that in every state. He can endorse folks, whatever. It, it doesn't bring that block of people to the polls, but they were coming back in 2020. I knew that was going to be difficult. And, and honestly, just from the time that, that he took office in January of 2018, the media characterized, I mean, this not the left media, the right media, just the media. I mean, it was like, you know, he's only going to be here three years. He's like the Democrat in, in, in most danger. That's difficult to overcome in a lot of ways. When I interviewed the senator, he made reference, if I remember correctly, that the state in terms of data and functional Democratic Party was not at the top of the list. Let's just say, I don't remember how he put it, but it seemed like there was a lot of work to do. What did you see from the one election to the next? Where was the state short of where it needed to be? The state was, is short. I think many Southern states are in the same boat. And maybe contrast with Georgia that has had um, a period of kind of continuous investment in the capacity, yes, a, a partisan organization, but also some engagement organizations around that. And so you have a known base of, of, of people who wish to participate. You have resources for that. That has not happened in Alabama and Mississippi and South Carolina, I mean, and Louisiana, Tennessee, places like that. It just has, has not occurred either through the traditional DNC, DSCC, DCCC, any, any of those, or through progressive political groups that are outside the, the official 
Democratic Party, you just haven't had anywhere near the same uh, investment. And that, that takes a while. We were able to, uh, to, to win in 2017, despite the fact that that, that wasn't there. And it wasn't going to be there in 2020. Alabama was never going to be a target state for uh, for Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee uh, would, would have been at the time. Alabama was not going to receive the kind of attention and funding, and therefore it contributes to the overall lack of building the capacity. Well, Georgia's had close presidential election results for a long time, and Alabama hasn't. Georgia has had a closer and then in 2020, fortunately, was able to, to, to push it over. The race that everyone thought was going to turn Georgia actually was when uh, Jimmy Carter's grandson, Jason, was running for governor. And then Sam Nunn's daughter was running for the U.S. Senate. And that was going to be the point at which Georgia turned blue. And, yeah, they both got in the low 40 percent of the vote. That's, I think, really when the work of, of Stacey Abrams and, and, and folks like that to move Georgia forward, to move it up a notch four years later began and paid off in, in both 2020 and then with uh, Warnock in 22. Still very close elections, so very close elections. Well, it certainly seems like it would be greatly in the interest of the United States to have state level contested elections that are winnable by either party in Alabama and around Alabama. Yeah, it's democracy, right? It would be. As we see the demographics of, of, of the country changing, as we see the opinions even of younger voters that, that you want to have the best ideas come out, you want to, to have those sorts of civil debates, but it certainly would be in the best interest of the country and of those that would like to see uh, progressive candidates, thoughtful candidates, either elected or be very competitive. And the Republican Party, I think, did a masterful job with this and has proven that like this is not something you can come in 90 days before and, and say, let's go do this. We're fine. A decade and the investments in it and, and the willingness to build the systems, build the data systems, build the organizations, um, again, that are not just purely partisan, but that are affiliated organizations and, and that network to build that and to also build the candidates who will appeal to the folks there. It takes a while to do that. It takes investment to do it and patience. And sadly, that's not the modus operandi of our progressive infrastructure. We need to change that, though. Georgia's shown that. The investment that Wisconsin folks did a really amazing job, I think, over the really just the last four years. They they didn't have as far to come back up as, as perhaps we in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana do. But the potential is there. The potential is absolutely there. And to write off large parts of the country, whether it's the South or whether Midwestern states, at some point, the numbers just don't work for you. No, it doesn't. Uh, too many small states, too many rural states, too many Southern states. You, we, we can't hold the Senate without winning some of them. How you came to my attention was through Senator Jones, who mentioned to me that he's very interested in a group called every voice. Are you running it? It's a project that he and I have been working on for probably a year and a half now. It's really to bring the political and civic organizing capacity to the South to reflect the diversity of the people and opinions that, that we have in 2023. Is that why it's called every voice because of the diversity of opinions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and then that's what we should all want for small d democracy. We should want people to participate. We knew that in 2020 and, and years before and, and, and the, the cycle since, again, if you look at the states in the deep south and, and generally the states in the south, the participation rates politically are, are lower than they are anywhere else in the country. I think Minnesota always is, is always number one. I think they're really proud of that. Like 80% of the eligible people in Minnesota vote. Here in the South, you have both structural reasons that have been 
put into place, voter suppression, if you want. You have voter suppression. You have voter ID laws. You, you have those structural things, but you also have just not uh, the ability to to continuously generate candidates that are appealing to to voters who are again more diverse in their thoughts. We have to to, to build those things. It's not a short term thing. It, I, sometimes I, I, I hear that, and I. Um, either hear myself saying it or hear other people saying it about things. And it sounds like, God, that's such a cop out, right? So we need to fund this and nothing's going to happen for 10 years. That's not what we're saying. There are intermediate victories. I believe that Stacey Abrams wrote a really good piece after the contest in 22, that, that, that sometimes we have to really lose well to build. We need to do that as well. That, that'll be part of it. That's what we're looking for, though, is to really engage folks we found that in Southern states that the people below the age of 45, I mean, really just were not engaged, were not voting. Lots of reasons for that, but it, we have to fix everyone we can going forward, both for those of us who care about seeing on a partisan level, seeing these be com- competitive uh, areas, but again, also just to have an engaged populace and people who really think that the institutions matter to them, they have a say. I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for people who are working in these long-term battles because you run afoul of the smart targeting ethic that that is infused in our politics, which is like, well, if I've got $100 to spend, then I'm going to run a formula that tells me what's the next state Senate district that I could most likely have that dollar make a difference in the election coming up in six months. You run that same kind of thinking across all kinds of the of our politics up and down. And what you end up is in a presidential election, you're focusing on on the electoral college swing states. You're focusing on the 35 most competitive congressional races or whatever the number is that year. And you work that down all the way. And what happens is most of your money doesn't go to a place where your chance of winning in the next election are close to zero. Even if investing in it might raise your chances down the road, you are under investing for your future, even if you're maybe doing the smart thing for your present. How do you overcome that? How do you see people overcoming that elsewhere and what are you thinking? Yeah, boy, you're absolutely right. That That's what typically happens, right? I mean, it, there'll be a period where we talk about needing to invest in certain areas for the long term. And then all of a sudden you're 180 days out, 120 days out. The long term just doesn't seem as important anymore. And particularly when, when the way you're making that judgment um, may have something to do with current polling, whatever you think of the validity of that at any given time. But it's got a lot to do with historical actions, right? So it's like you're you are you're predicting the future based upon what's happened in the past. So it becomes self-reinforcing. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. It's yeah. absolutely it's absolutely a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and, and what you describe as a way to to, to allocate resources um, 90 days out from an election perhaps isn't a crazy thing to do. What's crazy is to never try to build other areas that could be competitive where 90 days out, you're making somewhat different decisions. When you think about the advocacy for a 50-state project at the DNC, or when you talk to people, like I talked not that long ago to the campaign manager for Fetterman for Senate, and one thing that he felt he did and they pushed was appearing and campaigning in rural Pennsylvania, even though those were not counties that they were going to carry, they still needed more votes out of them and got more votes probably because of that attitude towards campaigning than they would have got that may have been part of making the difference. So help me understand what the theory is for every voice about what can you do because you have a long-term battle, inarguably, in some of these states. 
Well, the, the theory starts with the, the what if you don't do it? And it, it's if you don't do it, if you don't do anything, we have uncontested elections. No one runs. No one that, that has any, any chance of winning. I mean, you, you may have a token candidate in there. So that's what you get. If you don't do it, what you're going to do is lose. And you're going to lose consistently. And you're going to lose generations of people who probably are much closer to your position than they are the position of your opponents. And that's what we're seeing right now. Making the argument that this can be done, it requires a little bit of faith in those who are going to carry out the, to, to build the tools in the community. But the best to me, it's the opposite argument. It's the, what if you don't do anything? What's going to happen? Does anybody believe we're going to win? If we don't do anything. Well, and not only that, like if you don't invest in an election where you have a credible candidate, but you think you're very unlikely to win, you teach your party, you teach the people that it's hopeless. Like I think not, not contesting DeSantis in Florida because it would have cost a lot of money and you probably would have still lost. He won by a lot more. He enhanced his reputation. The Florida Democratic Party is in disarray. We're waving goodbye to a state that we lost by a hair from 2000 to 2018. It's a disaster. Yeah. In terms of, of not having a 50-state strategy, I, I actually was talking to, to someone not very long ago who a progressive Democratic activist in Ohio. She's been around for a while. I'm in a state where We've really never had very much investment, but for that shining moment, perhaps in 2017, it was hearing of Ohio. It's like, you know, used to be like for three weeks before the election, God, you, you sure wouldn't answer your phone. This is, I guess, when people had landlines and the knocks on your door constantly. I mean, and now it's crickets, you know, so that's a bad situation too, right? When you've invested in something and you stop investing in it. And we've seen what happens. So to your point of Florida, it's painful to be in those locations. I, I know that they have had that investment in the past and have stopped getting it. Here, um, haven't in my lifetime really, really had it. Very different place in the South today than it was in the 80s and the 90s. So if you're sitting across from a progressive donor who might potentially be talked into helping with a project like you have, or even to a room full of smaller donors or activists or people like, what do you say to such people to say, you got to get in here, you got to put the time and the money and the effort in because our future depends on it? How do you convey that? Well, the larger donors, you can say, in what way do you think we win going forward if, if you neglect so many areas. There are some some certain cases where the investment has come. And again, I'll I'll use Georgia. And I'm I'm not I'm not going to use Georgia as the perfect example, but uh, of an example where a great deal of time, money, and effort has gone in there and it has paid off. I mean, and it's beginning to. And hopefully we're on the front end of that. By no means is that a done deal. It, it is there. You have the, ben the benefit of most of the other southern states are, are, are a fraction of Georgia in size and cost to do things like this. Really, anything that, that may be one of the craziest parts of this is, is like we're talking about small states where when, when you talk about percentages in elections, it's almost crazy to, to talk about percentages. I mean, what, what are the raw numbers? What do you have to move? And you're not talking about you know, it's not like Texas. It's not like, right. I was about to say, it's yeah. not like Texas. How many votes are we short in a statewide election in Alabama of a win? Well, in Alabama, uh, I mean, probably 250, 300. 300,000 people. Yeah. Which is not that many people. It's not that many people. In Mississippi, it's less than 100,000 that we're short of a win. That's a fairly cheap Senate seat if it were Oh, my be God. Won. Yeah, it really, I mean, it's even look at, at, at Mike Espy's, I mean, a couple of very close attempts there. 
these are cheap. This is not even Georgia. You don't have the Atlanta media market. Why would you not invest in that? Louisiana has had you know a two-term Democratic governor. I mean, we're talking about Mississippi. Jim Hood, who lost to Tate Reeves four years ago, was had been an elected statewide Democrat. Granted, special election, but Doug Jones won here in 2017. It's um, you, you've got Kentucky. So what do you what specifically do you want to do? Like what do we want to do? Yeah, like what 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 are the first things that you want to attack, make happen through every voice? What we have to have in any of these states to build that engagement capacity is data. We're on calls from time to time where we're talking to donors about what we're trying to do and you have to suspend your belief that all this already exists because I know I know it does in your state, right? But Doug Jones, if you look at, at any of the scoring metrics and the analytics that, that are available, they're not robust enough here to either convince candidates to run, to know who, who to engage politically or civically and in what way to do it. It's, it's analogous to, to the how you allocate money um, uh, you know, 90 days out from an election, what are you going to win? Of course, the groups, you're putting your time and effort uh, into to those, those states that are most likely to be heavily used. You know, you're going to be texting somebody 12 times in Arizona. You're not going to be texting somebody 12 times in Mississippi. And therefore, as we have organizations that come online that try to engage people in, 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 a, in a civic way that then becomes political, especially, you know, or around issues. The resources are just not strong enough to sustain that effort. And so that's the first thing that has to, to, to be built here or improved. You have to have those fundamental tools um, to move forward. What would you like to see this organization turn into over time? It's funny. I'd almost like to see this organization not have to exist over time, honestly, that there's enough of a robust infrastructure and that the tools are sufficiently there that it doesn't take this sort of external catalyst to push it forward. I know too many people form too many organizations. Believe me, we're not trying to brand something for the long term here, we're trying to partner with others who are already working and beginning to work in this space to, to get them the tools, to get them the technical assistance, to get them the financial capacity that they need to really engage the, the people who live in the southern states in 2023 and will in, in, in the future and to let them express the opinions and views and voices that they have. I know that sounds almost, you know, pie in the sky, but it, it really would be. Ideal. I don't think it does. I've seen states move a long way and a lot of people have been involved in those processes in Virginia or Colorado in one hand and West Virginia and Iowa going the other way. I mean, like states move a long way in a short time very often. And there's absolutely no reason why. The states that you're talking about, the Alabamas and Louisianas and Mississippis, can't also move, especially because the, demographically they are diverse. They have big bases in the African-American community, much bigger than other states that are far less progressive. Yes. It seems like there's the raw material there if there's the effort, the investment, the persistence, the smarts, the data, all of the things that need to come together, the leadership. I think you're absolutely right. I have no rebuttal to, to that statement. You're right. Things can change much more quickly than, than people realize. And I think that the fact that, again, the turnout, the participation has been traditionally so low in Southern states. There's a political culture difference as well as institutional efforts to suppress votes that are part of this. And probably those need to be attacked head on. I mean, maybe that's one of the things that you got to tackle first is like that culture around voting, around participation, year round voter engagement, 
community engagement. And I know there are people who are very good at that. I hope they can be brought into even more action than they currently are involved. Well, um, I think that that your voice is powerful in saying that. I um, hope many of them are listening to this. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they are. And there's a job to be done in convincing them initially that the South can move just as a Colorado did, just as an Arizona has, just as Nevada has. It may not be the exact same formula, no, it but, be, but it's yeah. going to be a lot of the same basic actions that have an ear open to, to, to the nuanced changes that need to be made in implementing those things. Well, I hope you have great success in moving that forward because it would really help out. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I think you did a great job of asking me all the questions and even even some that I, I wasn't expecting there from you. I appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you here. I appreciate what what you've both done in the past and and are doing now. Enjoy the work you do, and and I like to to listen to the really smart folks who come on your show and are talking about the great things they're doing to push us forward. And I hope we can bring some of that to the south. I really do, because I think the, the potential's there. Well, I'm glad that the two Dugs are working on this, and I hope you find a whole lot more Dugs and maybe even <laughs> some other names. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think we move beyond move beyond the Dugs um, <laughs> and, and, and and broaden this a little more. But thanks for for the opportunity. To, to Thank you. Anything else you want to say? No, just I I, I really do appreciate it. That was Doug Turner. He is at J underscore Doug underscore Turner on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.